Hello and welcome to Four Books. In this month's episode, the Four Books spaceship hovers over Glasgow as I catch up with August Thomas, debut author of Liar's Candle, a compelling thriller set in the US Embassy in Turkey. August was over from America to book tour the UK, and I took the chance to hear about her four books following her appearance at the Wigtown Book Festival. I was delighted to find that she'd really thought about the practicalities of spaceship life, and we had a fantastic chat about books writing and her particularly international perspective. We met for a coffee in Glasgow's Central Hotel, which means that, as ever, there is some background noise. This time, it's the echoey corridor in which we were sat, the rattling wheels of a trolley, and around the 25 minute mark, the faint inquiry of Tina Turner, asking, what has love got to do with it? I hope you enjoy it. Today, Four Books headquarters is up in Glasgow with August Thomas, the debut author of Liar's Candle, which has been described as Lacari and Follett traditions brought into the 21st century, which is an amazing way to start. August, I wonder, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your background and what you did before you got into writing? Absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm a very unusual and strange creature in the sense that this is actually my first proper career. I was very lucky. Oh. I had... I actually sold Liar's Candle um, when I was 25, when I had just finished my master's. So I actually, this, this, this is it. <laughs> wow. But before then, I was living in Turkey. I was actually studying something completely unrelated and equally impractical. I was studying the history of art in Istanbul. Um, but I was there on a U.S. government scholarship, and I... Is that the Fulbright scholarship? It's the Fulbright, right? yeah. Okay. And as a result, I had the chance to meet some diplomats, and I got fascinated by their world and that life, and that's actually what Liar's Candle, which is a spy novel, mm. sort of began to grow out of. That's amazing. What then, given... I mean, you're really throwing yourself into this right from the off. So what is a typical writing day for for you, I mean, you're talking about this. You know, this is this is your first job, and it's obviously something that you see. Then, this is your profession. So, if you 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 know you're completely dedicated to it. So, what is a typical writing day? Oh my goodness! Well, as as you're a writer as well, and I'm sure you know it, it varies enormously. And I try to be disciplined with mix yep. with mixed success. I, there is no typical writing day. Okay. I do love to write in the morning if okay. I can make that happen with right. a clear, sort of a clear mind and before all of the other responsibilities sort of creep up on you. Yeah, okay. What's a good writing day then? But I get kind of... I'm, comf- I'm quite happy with a thousand words. This is just first draft stuff. I yeah. prefer editing a lot. But first draft, I'm quite comfortable with, with a thousand words. I'll be very pleased with 1,500, delighted with 2,000, and quite bad company with 500, I think. Oh, you know, that's I'm sure interesting. My, my wife would say, you know, I can be quite relaxed if all I've done is rework a single paragraph over and over again and written an, another you feel happy 200 with words it. or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's just, if all I'm trying to do is write new words, 500 would be, w- wouldn't represent a good enough a satisfactory day for me. That's interesting. For me, it would depend on how much of a block of time I've I've got because mm. I've definitely have had like a partial writing days where I would be 
absolutely thrilled to have 500 words. Yeah. If I if I get up to the 1500 2000 mark, I am very 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 happy with myself. Yep. Obnoxiously so, you might say. No, but <laughs> I I'm not a very fast writer. I also in many ways prefer editing and tinkering. But it is quite exciting. Actually, I'm sort of racing, trying to race through the end of the first draft of the book right now. Okay. And it is quite exciting when you are doing, yep. if you're, you're, especially if you're able to go quickly, when you're actually putting the story on paper for the first time. Yep. And I think especially when you get towards the end of it, you really have that between your teeth. So you have, you've chosen your four books. This, has been, this is quite a rushed meeting that we've had. This, is, this has been arranged quite last minute. So you've not had much time to think about your four books. Was, was it quite a difficult choice? Is it something that you have, do you have comfortable rereads that you reach for? Are you a big oh rereader that you would have these things in mind or was it a difficult I'm an difficult enormous list? rereader, but actually it was really challenging. I think part, partly because I was distracted by this fascinating concept of being on an alien spaceship. Oh, and I was completely, I was good. like, should I bring an alien dictionary? Am yeah. I, what? Do I need to understand the culture? Do I need, you know, some kind, some kind of war manual so I can figure out how to overthrow them? Am I there voluntarily? It's what you get for I'm asking really fiction writers a question yeah, like that. About that. I always um, really like it when people take it, you know, as a practical thing. It's not just four books. That it's not just a list. You have to actually think of the circumstances. Do you believe in aliens? Um. Well, I would have said an extremely firm no, but I was actually, I was just up at the Wigtown Book Festival and mm -hmm. I was and put... Some of the people there convinced the, you? Yes, yes, I thought, oh, there must be some explanation. No, um, they were all lovely. Um, <laughs> no, they put, very kindly put me in a and b and one of the other guests was a physics professor oh, who has also just written a book. And he has, was, right, was trying to explain to me, I'm not necessarily the most receptive audience for this, this information, but it was fascinating. He was trying to explain to me about um, the probability of the forms that alien life would take, just based on the laws of physics, like okay. a, a, a water-dwelling alien who moved quickly would have to physically, in some ways, resemble something like a dolphin, just because there are only so many ways to move quickly through water. So okay. I, I am... Maybe, I'm not especially believing in aliens, but maybe a tiny, tiny um, possibility, thanks okay. to the physics professor. That's a very interesting take on it. Well, your, your first book choice is Around the World with Anti-Mame. Yes, now, have you, had you ever heard of that Never one? Never in my life. I'm actually saying it carefully just to make sure that that's what it's called. <laughs> that is what it's called, Around the World with Anti-Mame by Patrick Dennis. And I found that uh, British friends often haven't heard of this. Mm. Um, it was a massive smash hit in the U.S. in the 1950s. And uh, that, that doesn't necessarily make for a very good recommendation. Oh, it was a big hit in America <laughs> in 1955. But it actually is one of my favorite books. It is really, it's, it's presented as a novel, but really more of a series of linked short stories. And okay. if you're thinking, oh, God, that sounds poncy and appalling, you're wrong. You're very, very wrong. <laughs> it's, it's really funny and full of life and sort of sassy, but also intensely opinionated with a little undercurrent of politics. It's basically the story of this outlandish woman, uh, Mame Dennis, who is, through a stroke of terrible uh, bad judgment on someone's part, put in charge of her young orphaned nephew, Patrick, and sort of whisks him around the world in these series of hilarious and appalling adventures. Is um, it set in the 50s as well? It's set in the 30s. Do you know, I was um, gonna, that's really interesting. The way that you're describing that, 
it feels like a 30s thing. You can imagine kind of big steamer trunks and things like yes, that well, in the background in, in, of this. In her case, probably about 18 of them. Okay, yes, yes. that's it. Um, but like, no, no. like them loading up at the start of a Titanic movie, you know. Yeah, to a, certain extent, kind of to a certain extent. And she, yeah. you know, she's the sort of person who will accidentally end up dancing in the Follies Bergère in Paris if she mm. goes there or end up uh, sort of in a, in a wrangle with these early Nazis in, in Austria. Wow. Um, she, so they're very lively, they're very funny, and actually the author, Patrick Dennis, is a real character because he was a closeted bisexual man in 1950s America, which was a, a tricky thing it's to be, yeah. but um, ended up living a life almost as colorful as his character. So Mame was made into a film starring Rosalind Russell, who was a huge movie star at the time, and then mm. a series of Broadway musicals, but he, Patrick Dennis, the author, managed to lose his entire fortune and ended his life as a butler which is sort of not, not so actually for us, the thinking ahead for career plans as writers, yeah. you can always fall back on, on buckling. One could buckle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very unexpected choice. I, 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 love, I love getting things like that. And it was interesting. I was listening to another podcast recently, which is down the rabbit hole. And they had Chelsea Clinton on. And she really? was talking about, you know, she's, I know it's good. Eh? She, uh, she was talking about the books that had really influenced her and, and her childhood and things. And there were so many things that came up talking about, you know, books that had been, you know, significant in the US and things like that. And it's, it's even, you know, things like Dr. Zeus is so, is so influential and so important in the US and just hasn't ever quite had the same kind of impact here. So it's always really nice coming across things like that that you, you just don't know of yourself. Well, with that one in particular, I think I have such a fondness for it because I once lived in... I want, sorry, a lot of background noise. I once lived... Uh, you wait for that. I'll wait for that, yeah. I'm not going to make you try to edit that out. One of the reasons I have such a particular fondness for Around the World with Auntie Mame is uh, my fr I said I hadn't had any other jobs before being a writer, and that's that's mostly true, but I have done quite a lot of teaching, mm -hmm. generally in relatively short bursts. But my first job after university, I was teaching English uh, in northern Italy on Lake Como. But where right. I, I say on Lake Como, it was really more above Lake Como because to access the place I'd found to live, you had to take a funicular up the mountain and then follow a mule path, an unlighted mule path <laughs> by foot. It seemed right. like a good idea at the time, but there was no internet up there. Sure. Um, so I had, and also I had to, so, so I had to go down to Milan if I wanted to buy English language books. So mm -hmm. anyone that I did buy got read over and over and over and over yeah. again because I had a very small number of them, and that mm -hmm. was that was one of the books. Well, that's, I mean, you, you've obviously you've, you've travelled a lot, and, and you talked about your your time in Turkey. So, your your relationship with Turkey when you were there. Did you know that you were going to write about it? Was it something that really infected your imagination living there? That's a good question. No, I really didn't. Okay. I was there. So you weren't consciously taking notes. No, of all things, I was working on a story about Richard the Third when I was living okay. in Istanbul, which is about as far away as you yeah, can get. Yeah. Um, but it sort of crept up on me. I really was convinced I would write sort of serious historical fiction, like you know, sort of aiming. Like being inspired by people like Hilary Mantel and that mm -hmm. sort of thing, um, 
And I, it was not until I left Turkey. I, in fact, the, the Liar's Candle is about a young summer intern at the U.S. Embassy in Turkey's capital city, Ankara, uh, who survives a massive terror attack and then has to go on the run. And I actually had been accepted for that internship program and had ended up turning it down to move to Edinburgh in large part. Um, and so a lot of the fascination uh, with that entire world got poured into my fiction unexpectedly because I had sort of, I had been quite seriously considering yeah. trying for a career in diplomacy or something along those lines. Okay, that's interesting. And how did you find your time in Edinburgh? That's a, it's a real gear change to think about <laughs> certainly taking is. that to then move to to the capital of Scotland instead of the capital of Turkey. It is quite it is quite a, a gear change. Well said. Um, well, what first struck me is it was just I happened to move to Edinburgh, and I had in no way timed it this way. Just like a couple of weeks, I think it was before the independence referendum. Okay, so and four I years ago, just now. Yeah, and what had been, what was very striking to me is when I had lived in Istanbul about a year ish earlier. I had happened to be there in the middle of the Gezi Park protests, which was this massive okay. wave of civil unrest, just millions of people sweeping the country, and it ended up getting quite violent because of the government crackdown. Yeah. Um, and so I was, my first impression of, and this I think is a rather unusual one, is I, I thought, oh my gosh, these people are the mo most well-behaved, well-mannered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, that's what everyone thinks when they arrive in Scotland. Now, yeah, um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> no, but that really was, I, w I really, my very first impression of Scotland was to be, I mean, admittedly, I was living in central Edinburgh, but to be so impressed that people were having these conversations in a, in a, more measured and also in a very open way because one of yeah. the real issues in Turkey is freedom of speech. You could yeah. not have that kind of intense yet civil public debate. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. I, I was still teaching at the time of the referendum and the level of engagement among the, the young people that I was teaching because the franchise was extended to 16 year olds so they were able to vote. Oh, I remember And that, the engagement yeah. that they had and... Um, I think, generally speaking, I think online things tend to slightly spill out of control, yeah. as they do. But generally speaking, the level of, of discourse around it was, was highly engaged and very civil, I think. That's which was really something that impressive. We were pretty, pretty proud of it, I think, you know. Um, so that's... And now you've moved back to the States, and it's become a bit of a political powder keg as well. So That's one I way of describing it, yeah. So it was, when you were in Turkey, things were kicking off there. You then came here for the independence referendum. You've now moved back to the States. So are you a kind of political jinx, do you think? And I think the, the evidence all points to the fact that I'm typhoid Mary as where, far as, <laughs> as, far as that goes. Where are you going to go next? Should, we be, should you be on I some kind know, of watch list? I don't know, I shouldn't say stocks will plummet, people will <laughs> flee. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting one to watch out. Watch this space. Your second book choice is a wonderful one. I love this. It's called Being, B-E-E-I-N-G, Life, Motherhood and 180,000 Honeybees. And that, that's a fairly unique piece of work. So tell us about that. Absolutely. So I, for me, writing is very much the family business. And my mother, Roseanne Darrell Thomas, is... A writer as well. She's published five books, and being uh, she she writes all sorts of things. But being is a memoir of the year when I was seven years old, and she took up beekeeping 
Uh, and part of why she did it was because she wanted to show me that you could follow through on your dreams, even if you really had no idea how you were going to make it happen. She'd never expected to have the opportunity to keep bees. Somebody off basically offered her a bit of field in front of seven-year-old me, and she just decided to go for it. Just commit to it. Yes, yeah, she amazing. decided to commit to it. She had to learn how to use a hammer. Um. <laughs> so how, how did it, no, you know, hashtag no spoilers. How did it go? What do, what do you remember of the... Because obviously, I mean, we're talking about the book, but you lived this experience. Well, I was so impressed with her. I still am. Um, she, we're, I mean, we're really... We're best, we're best friends. I'm really lucky there. And she... Um, she... I just... I took it sort of for granted that, of course, she could do this. But it was actually really difficult. I was useless. I was not a helpful little child. I would sort of... I would sort of watch. Very, very interested, but not help. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, the one good thing about it is I have a legacy of not being particularly jumpy about insects because okay. there's, that's a lot of bees. Yeah. And you get, you get very used to having them around. The one exception is ants for some reason. Because well, actually, I know what the reason is. When I was living in that mountain inn in northern Italy, right. I used to wake up and find like a dozen ants crawling around on my face, oh, no. which has, has rather put them, no, me off no, them no. quite severely. But bees uh, are wonderful and fascinating, and that book is... Um, a really precious artifact for me. So I figured if I got homesick on the on the spaceship, and it also is just a wonderful uh, and very humane and intelligent book. Yeah, that's an extraordinary thing to have. Um, how much of an influence has your mother been on your writing, in stylistically and in terms of how you work, not just the desire to write, or, and I think, I mean, it's a big thing for people, legitimizing the, the desire in itself you know not feeling silly for imagining that this might be a thing that you can do you've obviously grown up knowing that it is a thing that somebody in your life can do um how much has she been an influence stylistically did you, did you consciously learn from her do you run your work past her and she's been an enormous influence our writing is nothing alike right. um i as you say i think knowing that writing was an actual thing you could do was a huge gift and having someone who would take me seriously right from the get-go with my desire to try to write um, was also an enormous gift because I think that can be very difficult if you don't have anyone who if everyone just says oh haha ha, yeah right you're gonna mm -hmm. be a writer that can be quite challenging to power through yeah. um, I definitely she has a I definitely in terms of work ethic and work habits um, I've learned a lot from her. She likes to say there's no book but a finished book, mm -hmm. um, which was a very helpful thing to have repeated to me um, yeah. at some stages, especially with the first novel, where it's very it's easy to sort of flag. Oh, um, totally. Is it now, Liar's Candle, this is your first published novel. What have you written prior to this? I had written a bunch another novel. I'd actually... Not... <laughs> not an enormous amount, but what I I, had, I I mentioned the project about Richard the mm Third, -hmm. that was a novel that I had actually won a scholarship for. In fact, my scholarship to come and move to Scotland was partly based off of that novel. Okay. Um, and I got my literary agent with it, but it didn't. Say, it, it had there was one new publisher that was interested in it, but it just didn't make. It, it wasn't. It didn't make sense for a first novel to go with that. No bad reflection on them. It just wasn't wasn't going to be the right choice for me mm -hmm. um so liar scandal was not the first novel i wrote but definitely the first spy spy thriller yeah it's a, that's a real gear change as well it's really interesting that's that was very similar to my experience the book that got me my agent was a book of, of a kind of middle grade 
really for ten-year-olds. Really? Um, and yeah, it was it was a book about a, a, a small boy whose grandfather was was dying of, of cancer. This is my oh grandfather my had just died. And as this was happening, the puppets, the clown puppets that his grandfather had uh, had made his craft, came to life and tried to kill the little boy. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so this uh, this um, kind of unpleasant death slash murderous clown puppet books was deemed too scary for kids. It sounds too scary for me. Which it is, sounds brilliant, but it's it sounds probably terrifying. fair enough. Yeah, you know, it for children. Um, so Put a that real was, Stephen King vibe <laughs> going on there. So that was, but this became, it got me my agent, um, which is, which is obviously fantastic and, and transformative in terms of your career oh, and your belief in what you're doing. Um, and I had been told prior to that by another agent who had requested a, a full manuscript that she had read it and said, you know, I really like this. I don't think this is going to be the book that, uh, that kind of unlocks your publication. It's maybe best that you, you think of this kind of as your calling card. And it was, it was both um, uplifting and dispiriting at the same time okay, because you're hoping for that breakthrough. Yes. But also the level of encouragement was also transformative, you know, and it's, I mean, she was completely vindicated because that's exactly what happened. Um, that eventually somebody had said, we like this, like, you know, he can obviously write, you can't possibly give this to children, you know, um, <laughs> does he have anything else? And so my agent had, had given them a short story that I had written um, for uh, Simon Clark, who's another, uh, one of my agent's clients for his blog. And they bought the short story to be turned into a book. So I, a little bit You're like you, kidding. that's it a, amazing. It was a very unusual way into, and quite uh, high pressure. It was a very short deadline to come up with this. But and I had no idea what I was going to do. Such a vote of confidence. I don't think I've, I, other than that one uh, cat, cat person, or there was some New Yorker story where that blew oh, up yeah, and yeah. To, But other than extreme cases like that, yeah. I don't think I've ever even heard of that. I was going to say, I mean, I didn't go viral or anything the way cat person did, but um, it was it was a very unexpected of events and what it meant was that I ended up writing something that I hadn't expected to write because my first book is is based on a real life thing here in Glasgow actually which is the Glasgow Humane Society and there's a man George Parsonage who goes out on the Clyde in a rowboat and looks after the river so he tends the river he clears weeds and you know people throw in the life rings off the bridges and things all the time and he also rescues people or helps people if they've fallen in or if they're out wow. in their own boats and the other thing that he does, and the thing he's, he's most known for, is recovering the bodies of people who've drowned in the Clyde. So when I went to speak to him about this, which is a few years ago, and, and George is in his mid-70s, um, he thought that he'd rescued about 1,000 people and recovered about 1,500 bodies, because he's been doing this since he was 14. Oh my goodness, I mean, what an amazing story. Right, and this is the I read about this in a Sunday newspaper, and it just seemed extraordinary to me. I mean, I couldn't do it now. You know, he's talking about the first time he'd found a body with his dad, you know, he took over from his dad and so on. It's like a 200-year-old institution. And, you know, at night, 60s Glasgow, still big industry, you know, this foggy night. It's the, it's the most terrifying thing you can imagine and he's done this his whole life, you know. And it was the, it wasn't just that circumstance, but it was the, the thought of being 14 and knowing that you're going to do this for the rest of your life, you know, that service you know it just seemed extraordinary to me so incredibly I mean, compelling I'm you've convinced me to go and buy it well, I can't recommend not it highly enough you know but I mean, this, I'm talking far too much about my own stuff no no I'm was, so glad you are well the point of it is that it was it was a similar experience to, to you because I had thought 
that I was going to write fairly kind of real world stuff and I, I had an idea of writing slightly kind of ageless things. I read a lot of Terry Pratchett when I was younger. Oh, you know? me too. So I didn't the, think of Terry Pratchett. So I'm kicking well, myself it's now. It's too late now. Uh-huh. I've, I've, I've inked them in, but um, hard to choose one Pratchett, I think, to be fair, out of 40. You know? Ooh, I, I quite love Lords and Ladies. You, do you know what? We will allow you to change okay. it if you like. No, you no, I'll leave it okay, be. I'll leave okay. it be. The thing with the Discworld books is that, that, and Pratchett's talked about this, that he would get you know, 12-year-old boys called Kevin and their mothers and they both loved the book and to sign it to both of them and it's not often because publishing especially the kind of marketing function of it is quite who are our readers and it's all quite targeted and who's going to read this book and the breadth of readership that something like Pratchett had and that kind of agelessness as I say was something I thought I would do with a real world context but I ended up writing this because they bought this short story and I had taken that the Humane Society idea made it the river keep and set it in just in this short story in this completely different world and so I ended up writing quite a kind of classic um, fantasy quest novel within this soggy Dickensian Victorianish steampunk world of my own creation this sounds I'm so glad this came to, <laughs> this came to the light of day that sounds absolutely fantastic you know, it was really good fun but I hadn't expected to write that at all and so I found myself thrown into this and I, I really loved doing it but you similarly thought that you were going to write a weighty historical novel. Oh my novel, goodness! Well, actually, the, and the, you've ended up doing spy fiction. The foundation that paid for, that paid my rent and paid my tuition when I was living in Scotland. I what I had, and they didn't mind my changing direction. But what I had applied to do was write about 16th century Venice, about okay. a, 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 an orphan singer girl, because there were these ospedali, these sort of great charitable foundations. I shouldn't be talking about the book that I didn't write. <laughs> 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 these fantastic charitable foundations where foundlings would be abandoned. The word foundling is such a powerful idea. It really is. It? They literally had a revolving door to put the babies in. Um, wow. And then the girls would be raised to sing and they became some of the most famous singers in Europe. Okay. Verdi, actually, a while later, started composing for them. It's, it's fascinating. I may, wow. I, may, I may do it yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I don't, I don't see it uh, as, a spy, as a spy thriller. Well, you never know. Well, it could be. The yeah. Ottoman Empire. Put it right in. That's really interesting. Yeah. So the, the, the change to spy fiction then, you're moving from a historical context which has its own expectations and functions into something where you... I mean, I've, I've mentioned... Lacari and Follett. So how much were you influenced by their work and how consciously were you writing within genre parameters? Because I'm always really interested in how people relate to genre. That's a great and insightful question. I will say I had not read widely in the spy fiction genre. Okay. I, um, I had watched lots of those wonderful sometimes cheesy, sometimes terrific spy films and television series, things mm-hmm. like The Americans, things like the Bourne movies and the yeah. Bond movies and other things that everybody, everybody's seen on an yeah. airplane, if nothing else. Yeah. But really what pulled me to this was real-life stuff okay. and actual conversations with, not, not with spies, but, with, but just conversations with people whose, whose job it is to observe other countries and make analyses based on that. I I just 
I had started reading enormous. This is going to make the book sound hideously boring. It's not. It has it has a helicopter scene. <laughs> but but I really I started reading foreign policy articles as if it were my job. Okay. Just because I was so fascinated by it, mm-hmm. and Turkey's politics is so dramatic and appalling yep. at the moment yep. uh, that it was impossible to look away, especially when I was living there and there were literally protesters in the street outside. Mm-hmm. So. I, I very much came to it, and as a result of that, I came to it with no feeling of genre pressure. I love Hitchcock movies. I love suspense. So I wanted yeah. to write a story where if you may, if if you if you read a few pages, you would then find it very difficult to stop. You keep wondering, but what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? Yeah. Uh, so I was very concerned with creating suspense and following in that tradition. But mm-hmm. I had no sense of oh, a spy novel has to include this, that, and the other. And in fact, because I was right, because of who the her- the heroes, the protagonists of my novel are, who are this sort of very ordinary young university student uh, woman and a. 25-year-old sort of rookie southern gay CIA officer, mm-hmm. which is n- which is not the standard issue spy fiction protagonist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of freedom. Yeah, it must be quite liberating actually. Do you think have, have you read more widely within the genre now? I have, and I've really enjoyed. It's been a side effect of the publication process, mm-hmm. where especially when when I was talking with my publisher about who we might ask for blurbs, I went, I got, I had the delightful experience of going out and reading tons of spy novels, mm-hmm. and I I really enjoyed that, and I found that I really. <laughs> that basically, the scarier the kind of thriller that people write, the nicer, <laughs> the nicer yeah. they themselves seem to be. Yeah. Well, that influenced, do you think, your subsequent work? Do you think, you know, you were maybe quite liberated by and unencumbered by those genre expectations, but now you're saturated in them? Ooh, that's a good question. I think that to a certain extent, it makes me more determined to uh, not to thwart genre mm-hmm. expectations, but to sort of use them unexpectedly. Yeah. That's the fun of them, I think. Yeah. So maybe to subvert, to subvert, I've just been at a literary festival, so to subvert that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to subvert genre expectations, uh, especially because with the one that I'm working on now, it begins in Budapest okay. and then drifts eastward towards Russia. Mm-hmm. And so writing that, more so than Turkey, that's such well-trodden ground that finding a fresh way to tell a spy story in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe and Russia yep. is quite a tall order and it's a fun challenge. But do you think it's the, it's the constant pull of Russia and Russia's emerging geopolitically as a, as a real villain again, you know, thanks to Big Vlad. Um, <laughs> Big Vlad, I'm calling him that from now we're, on. <laughs> we're getting some real kind of Cold War echoes in our international relations, you know. Do you think, are you really instinctively drawn to Europe as a setting? I mean, obviously you've travelled in Europe, you've been there and worked there. And when you mentioned the Bourne films and things, he's constantly in Budapest and Vienna and Berlin. So what, what do you think it is about... Europe that's that so draws the, the kind of spy intrigue? I think for American writers, I'm sure part of it is the opportunity to travel in Europe and have it as a tax write-off okay. for me. Yeah, yeah. For me, sense. though, it's much, much more that uh, I love travel writing. I actually, again, 
I, I have had many smaller jobs, just this is my first career, mm-hmm. and I worked as a travel writer, and I, I was updating a guidebook uh, in Turkey, and there is such an excitement in being constantly on the road, and also a fatigue and an intrigue, because you wonder about the strangers that you're thrown together with. Mm-hmm. I, as a reader also, I, I used to love old Agatha Christie's, uh, that you can travel with that mm. you can literally that you can take with you on the train but also yeah. where you can be on the Orient Express yeah, so you yeah, can yeah. be on the blue train down to down to Nice from Paris and you mm. can ride with her so I love that in spy fiction when you have a strong sense of place yep. um, and so it's to a certain extent it's following the places that I've been fascinated by but my choice of Eastern Europe was partly based in the fact that I really thought that so there's a lot of terrorism in Liar's Candle mm. I really wanted to look at something different. And so I actually think one of the most pressing issues uh, in the real world today is corruption, financial mm-hmm. corruption. Mm-hmm. And there are a few better places to look at that than Eastern Europe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> post-Soviet space. Well, your, your third and fourth and final choices are, are kind of bound. This is a first. You've chosen, and it, it, it's directly linked to your new writing, War and Peace, in Russian with a Russian dictionary. Yes, now this is actually more ba- more than bound to my writing. This is bound to the parameters you've, you've suggested because I thought, okay, yep. alien spaceship, I know I love to read. I also know that I will wear through, I thought, oh, Shakespeare anthology, and then you said no anthologies. No anthologies. No anthologies. And I thought, well, what on earth is going to keep me occupied for, for decades until I master the alien language mm-hmm. and read their books if they yep. have them? And I thought, aha. Well, I am trying to learn bits and pieces of Russian and Hungarian because I, I, I speak Turkish and I loved how I was able to infuse Liar's Candle with Turkish culture. Mm-hmm. That was part of what I really kind enjoyed with doing. Thing, yeah. Yes. Actually, the title Liar's Candle comes from a Turkish proverb that a liar's candle will only burn until dark, which means that the truth will always eventually oh, find a way to the surface. That's nice. But with the new one, trying to find a way to access that without fluent Russian or without fluent Hungarian has been an, has been a real challenge. I've been digging and trying to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can, but I've also encountered how hard that is. So I thought, aha, Russian dictionary and war and peace, that should do me for several years. You have the opportunity, yeah, <laughs> yes. absolutely. Now that I'm on the spaceship. Well, that's brilliant. What do you think has, has been the, the significant element of your, your publication success. You've written bits before, you've had some uh, some creative tuition, I think, you know, when you were at Edinburgh and, and bits of input, you have your mother's inspiration. You've been working towards this, you know, for a long time. And you talked about your Richard III book and what I'm really interested in, because it was, as I say, it was similar to my experience. What is it that made Liar's Candle the book that worked? What is it that changed about your your process or your ability to communicate your ideas or even just the concept that made this the one that's become your debut? That's such a fascinating question. Before I answer, I do want to say, um, in case case there are any writers listening to this, I do think luck is an enormous and understated uh, element in this process. I think you can write an absolutely spectacularly brilliant and timely book have it fall on the wrong ears and not find the light of day. I do yep. think that's that does happen. Yep. Um, for, so <laughs> with luck acknowledged for Liar's Candle, I think it was authenticity. I had just been living in Turkey, um, so that 
was very much drawn from my own experience. I am a young woman, and young women almost never publish spy fiction. I couldn't find a single other 20-something female author of spy fiction, period, and I really looked. So if, if, anyone, if anyone does uh, find one, I'd love, to, I'd, I'd love to know about her. But it's really uncommon, and I think that combination of authenticity with that and authenticity with Turkey and just good timing Turkey was in the news a ton Um, I think that's I think that's what it was I actually did have a really fun experience with the moment of selling the book I mean I think everyone's very pleased when when their book sells but I was so I mentioned I, I used to do travel writing and I actually recently published an article in The Scotsman about a journey that I had taken just when Lyra's Candle was on submission to publishers in the footsteps of this fantastic 18th century lady traveler called Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Amazing name. I know, right? She yeah. was the wife of the British ambassador to Constantinople, to okay. Istanbul. And she went on this incredibly dangerous bandit beset 800-mile uh, journey uh, overland, or excuse me, more than 800 mile journey. St- I started with, with, with her in theory in Vienna, um, and I followed in her footsteps all the way to the Turkish border, which was fascinating. Um, but actually, that meant that I heard that the editor at Scribner, who ended up buying Liar's Candle, I heard he was interested when I was on the banks of the Danube um, in Hungary, and then. I got a phone call from my agent when I was in Serbia, and he was like, "He wants to talk to you." And I was like, "But, but I have to get to I have to get to Niš, which is the town in eastern Serbia where I was staying, which is best known for its Tower of Human Skulls." That's amazing. Which is quite something to put in the tourist brochures. Yeah. Um, it, actually, I had thought, "Ooh, Tower of Human Skulls," <laughs> but actually, it's really horrifying and heartbreaking when you see it. Yeah. Um, but um, so I had this long conversation pacing around a Serbian hotel room, and by the time they made an offer, I was in Plovdiv, Bulgaria, um, and I I just sort of wandered around Plovdiv in this day, is thinking, my book just sold, and I'm in Bulgaria, and my book just sold. <laughs> Where I, that was not the way I'd ever pictured it, but it was marvelous. Yeah. There's a real kind of pinch me moment that it's it's so surreal, such a longed for thing. That you How can't was it quite for you? If, if we have time for it, I'd love to hear. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I mean, it was I was in my classroom at the time. Oh, that's perfect. No though. kids, I would say, because my agent phoned me, and because, you know, I was I wasn't actively teaching. Um, I was able to answer the phone and swear down the phone when she when she That's told me. So great! <laughs> it was great. That's I mean, it so was, great. and as I say, it was such an unexpected thing. But um, still, I mean, I think it's it's something that still seems to exist slightly outside of yourself. You know, it's it's a, it's an impossible thing to really relate to. And I had little moments because I actually got a phone call from my agent just on Friday. This is Monday that we were talking. <laughs> And I have little, every so often, I'll, you know, you pick it up in a shop and you hold the, the thing. That's or, the you know, best feeling. And it's the best yeah. and you get a, a concrete relationship to it. But otherwise, it seems still so kind of uh, pinch me and other, you know, and getting to do things like Wigton. You know, I was at Wigton last year, you're part of a book festival. It's the thing that you always wanted to do, you know, and so to be somehow kind of, to find yourself on the other side of, of that velvet rope 
is so surreal and delightful. I know? love hearing people's stories about that. And I yeah. love that it happened in your classroom. Yeah. <laughs> that is so wonderful the and kids perfect. Were, the kids were really Did they get it? it? They got oh, it, totally, yeah. yeah. I've, I've been You're back. a rock star now. I was, I was actually back in the school on Tuesday and Wednesday last week. That's the school my wife teaches in, is my old school. Um, so I went, I went back to see them again and do some, do some work. It was, it was great. Really, really loved it. But do you know we're on to your last question now? Oh my goodness! Um, it's a slightly cruel one. It's now, it's as, uh -oh. as is now traditional, because as you're staggering with your your pile of books towards a spaceship, the sheer weight of War and Peace and your Russian dictionary causes them to slip through your fingers. Oh, man. They land on your foot as you're hopping in agony. You fall over. By the time you're back to your feet. You only have time to grab one of your four books oh, no. before, before the, the beam whisks you away. So, which of your, which one of your four are you going to take? Well, that's ex especially vile of you to ask that, since one of them is by my mother. It's a very tricky. I know. I was aware of that when I was saying it. It's it's especially tricky here. Oh, well, I'm torn because on the one hand, I think I'll for the for the emotional sucker of while well, I'm in lost in space i think mm -hmm. i have to grab have to grab being mm -hmm. if i can somehow grab another one i will i will go back for auntie may around the world okay. with auntie may because i will need something to make me make me smile so that's your first and second yeah but mum first go. yes i think that's a very good choice august thomas thank you very much for speaking to me thank you have you. been beamed up to the full book species A wonderfully personal choice from August and probably an essential one for keeping peace in the Thomas household, especially with Thanksgiving mere days away. With that in mind, I'm thankful for the chance to re-watch the greatest Thanksgiving film of all time, which is, of course, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Thank you so much for listening. If you wanted to hit subscribe or give us a review, that would be fantastic. And if you've got any comments or questions, find me on Twitter at Martin J. Stewart and on Instagram at Martin underscore G underscore Stuart. Until next time then, keep reading.